Uh, we know that God has a heart for the nation, so it's always encouraging for us to be reminded of that. So thank you, Bora, for sharing. Um, certainly, we know that our brothers and sisters around the world are gathered today for worship, and we have the opportunity to gather together as a church as well. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in Luke 5, 12 to 26 this morning. If you're new with us this morning, or perhaps it's been a while since you've been with us, we are in the middle of this series on the Gospel of Luke. Here at Free Money Free, we like to take books of the Bible and preach through them verse by verse. The reason we do that is we really do believe the Bible is the Word of God, and as such, we want the Word of God to set the agenda every single Sunday. The last thing you need is for me to get up here and stand on some personal soapbox that I have, but what we desperately need is for God's Word to minister to us. So Luke 5, 12 to 26 is where we are this morning. Let me pray and we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into your Word, and indeed, we do have a confidence that it is your Word. And so this morning, we're praying that you would work in our hearts we know, though, for this to happen, it will be your work, that your spirit will have to work in us in such a way that our eyes are opened and our hearts are just drawn to worship. God, we, we confess that we are easily distracted. We confess that we are easily discouraged. We confess that we are easily prone to wander into sin. And so, God, we're just asking that in your mercy to us this morning, that you would minister to us in a mighty way through the preaching of your word. Through Luke chapter 5, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, a heart to understand, and a desire to worship you. So please be merciful to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So years ago now, I was having a spiritual conversation with an older gentleman. And as we were talking, it was quite obvious that this guy did not know Jesus. Now to be sure, this is something that he himself readily admitted to. He did not claim to know Jesus, nor did he express a desire to do so in the future. Quite simply, he wasn't all that interested in Christianity, but he was willing to have a spiritual conversation, and he was even willing to discuss his hesitation toward Christianity. And as it turns out, most of his hesitation centered around the church and around his interactions with those who claimed to be Christians. To put it bluntly, he had a bad taste in his mouth from some experiences in the church. He'd also encountered multiple people who claimed to be Christians, and yet they lived a completely hypocritical lifestyle. And so because of those reasons, he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And I have to admit that as he shared his story, I felt for him. I hate that he'd had a bad experience in the church. And as he talked about his interactions with those who proclaimed to know Christ, those interactions frustrated me too. There's something repulsive about people who say they love Jesus and yet live in a way that's completely inconsistent with Jesus' teachings. So given his experiences, I understood why this particular man was hesitant towards Christianity. The things that bothered him bothered me too. I think he was actually a little bit surprised when I told him that. I think maybe he expected me to defend the church or to excuse the unethical behavior of professing Christians. But the fact of the matter is that unhealthy churches and hypocritical Christians, they unsettle me too. Now, having said that, let me just be clear here. I love the church, and I fully embrace the reality that Jesus died for the church in all of its mess, and it is a mess. Furthermore, I'll freely acknowledge there is no such thing as a perfect Christian. To degree, all of us are hypocrites. I'm not saying that we should look for a perfect church or for perfect Christians. But when churches and professing Christians live in open disobedience to God's commands without any hint of repentance or remorse, well, that rankles me just as much as it did this guy I was having a conversation with. All that to say that I can understand why this particular man had some serious reservations about Christianity. But what I encouraged him to do as we were talking is simply to consider the reality of who Jesus is. As I told him, at the end of the day, Christianity is not about the church or about Christians. It's about Jesus. 
The question is not what does the church do or how do Christians act. I'm not saying those questions are unimportant. But the ultimate question and the one that really matters and the one that's at the heart of Christianity is simply this. Who is Jesus? And is he worth following? I think that's where the gospel accounts become exceedingly important. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were given a vivid picture of who Jesus is. And that picture is incredibly valuable because Christianity, at the end of the day, is about Jesus. We don't worship the church. We don't worship other Christians. Now, we're thankful for the church. We're thankful for other Christians. But we worship a risen Savior. And given that reality, the more we can know of Jesus, the better off we'll be. And so that's why our passage today is so beneficial. In Luke 5, 12 to 26, Jesus again does some miraculous things. He cleanses a leper. He heals a paralytic man. But those accounts, more than just telling us what Jesus did, help us to better understand who Jesus is. And that's something that we very much need. As I reminded my older friend in our spiritual conversation, at the heart of Christianity is the question, who is Jesus? And our passage today helps us to answer that question. So I said, let's stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word, Luke 5, 12 to 26. Standing is a simple way to remind ourselves this is the word of God, and as such, it's due our attention and our respect. So the words will be on the screen here. You can follow along in your own Bible, or you can just listen as I read. But Luke 5, starting in verse 12, says this. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and was seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So at some level, I think the entirety of the Gospel of Luke is really asking this question that we talked about at the beginning. Who is Jesus? So we're certainly not suggesting here that in Luke 5, 12 to 26, it's the only place that we could turn to in the Gospel of Luke that can better help us understand who Jesus is. The reality is that everywhere you turn in the Gospel of Luke, there's something more that we're learning about Jesus and who he is. In fact, to this point already in our study in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has already helped us to understand multiple things about who Jesus is. In chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He's uniquely supreme. He came to rescue the weak and the lowly. 
In chapter 2, through the narrative of Jesus' birth, Luke reminded us that Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. In chapter 3, Luke recounted Jesus' baptism and his genealogy. And in doing so, Luke helped us understand that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God, but also the Son of Adam. In chapter 4, we saw that he was the better Adam, overcoming temptation where the first Adam could not. Furthermore, as Luke narrated the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in the latter half of chapter 4, we were also reminded that Jesus is uniquely authoritative and powerful and there's no one else like him. In other words, what we're saying is all of the gospel of Luke to this point has been helping us to better understand who is Jesus. So when we look at Luke 5, 12 to 26, this morning we try to answer the question, who is Jesus? We're certainly not insinuating this is the only place to turn to in the gospel of Luke to figure out who Jesus is. Clearly, given what we've already learned in the first four chapters, there's a lot to learn about Jesus, and rest assured, there'll be a lot more to learn about him in the chapters to come. Luke 5, 12 to 26, then, is not the final word when it comes to understanding who Jesus is, and it's certainly not the exclusive source for understanding his identity. Rather, it's an important piece in the puzzle in trying to figure out who Jesus is. And actually, I think that analogy is helpful for us to understand what we're doing this morning. If you've ever put together a puzzle, you know that no one puzzle piece can capture the entire picture. It's only when all the pieces are put together that then you can see the big picture. No one piece tells the whole story, but each piece is valuable because they help us to understand the bigger picture. And as any person who's ever put together a puzzle can attest, if you're missing a piece, the puzzle doesn't feel complete. It feels like the picture is missing something. So all that to say, our passage today in Luke 5, 12 to 26 is helping us answer the question, who is Jesus? But it's not exclusively answering that question or exhaustively answering it. Rather, it's just giving us another piece in the puzzle. And I think what we're going to see this morning is that the answer we get or the puzzle that we see, the puzzle piece that we see in Luke 5, 12 to 26 is incredibly encouraging. It is just another piece in the puzzle, but it's a beautiful piece that helps us understand the larger picture. So with that understanding then of what we're doing this morning, let's just turn our attention back to, the que- or back to the passage and ask the question, who is Jesus? And based upon what we read in Luke 5, 12 to 26, I would propose there are three key things that we see about Jesus in this particular passage. First, we see this. Jesus is merciful and compassionate, responding to those who come to him in desperate faith. So in Luke 5, 12 to 26, we have two different accounts We have the cleansing of a leper, and we have the healing of a paralytic man. Both are accounts of desperate faith. In the first account, Luke 5, 12 to 26, we read about a man who is full of leprosy. Now, in biblical times, leprosy could refer to a wide range of skin diseases. The term was used in a much broader way back then than it is today. But regardless of the exact nature of this particular man's leprosy, the bottom line is that being a leper in ancient Israel was both physically and emotionally isolating. Because of the contagious nature of the disease, lepers were not allowed to touch another person. They were typically forced to live outside the city and forbidden from having any contact with others. If ever someone got close, the leper was to yell out, unclean, unclean. Long before quarantine then became a buzzword during the COVID years, a leper lived a life of quarantine. They lived alone. They lived outside the camp. On top of that, the disease itself could be disfiguring and in some cases even fatal. So needless to say, given the physical and emotional toll of the disease, you could understand why this leprous man would be so desperate to find healing. And that desperation is certainly captured in the passage. Look at the way in which he approaches Jesus in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, 
if you will, you can make me clean. It's one thing to be concerned about something, isn't it? It's another to be desperate. And clearly, given his actions, where he's falling on his face and begging, this man is not just concerned about his condition, he is desperate. He falls on his face, he begs the Lord, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. In that statement, he clearly believes Jesus has the power to do something. He's a little uncertain, though, if Jesus will do something. But Jesus is willing, and he does do something. We see this in verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So the man with leprosy comes to Jesus in desperate faith. And because Jesus is merciful and compassionate, Jesus heals the man. Now we see the same type of thing unfold in this second story of the passage. In verses 17 to 26, we find yet another desperate man. And the desperation of this second man is clearly seen in the description given to us in verses 17 to 19. Verse 17, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. He would come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, As I mentioned before, I think one of the dangers that we face in the American church, I suspect this is true of churches everywhere, but it's certainly true here of churches in America. One of the dangers that we face is we can become so familiar with stories that we start to lose our wonder. So I think this story is one of those that we could easily lose track of. So let's just take a step back here and consider what's happening in verses 17 to 19. A man is paralyzed, and he's desperate to be healed, and he's convinced that Jesus can heal him. And apparently his friends are convinced too, Because they carry him to a house where Jesus is teaching. But when they get to the house, they encounter a problem. They can't figure out a way to get to Jesus. The crowds are too thick. The way is impassable. And so they employ a tactic that could only be described as desperate. They decide they're going to go up onto the roof of the house where Jesus is teaching. And then they're going to make a hole in the roof so that they can lower their friend down to Jesus. Now in saying that, I think we should probably try to set the scene to make sure we understand what's happening here. Most houses in ancient Palestine were single-story structures with flat roofs that could be accessed by an outside staircase. These flat roofs would be made of packed clay or mud or tiles of some sort and were oftentimes used for multiple purposes. The roof would be used for working on things like laundry or for access to fresh air or even as a place that you might sleep on a hot night. As such, these roofs were not flimsy. They were built in order to support great weight and activity. So going up onto the roof of a house and digging a hole would be no small task. These would have been sturdy roofs. So the desperation of the men is seen and that they're willing to go do some serious trouble here and some serious work to get help for their friend. On top of that, you'd have to imagine that digging a hole in someone else's roof was probably not the type of thing that engendered goodwill from the homeowner. I mean, put it this way, if there's a Bible study in my house and someone starts chopping through my roof with an axe to get to the Bible study, my first response is probably not going to be, hey man, I'm so glad you're here for the Bible study. I appreciate your desperation, bro. Whatever it takes to get here, you did it. That's awesome. Now, maybe that would be your response. Maybe you're just a gracious person, but that would probably not be my response. My my response would probably be, what are you doing, you doofus? This is my roof. Don't mess with my roof. All that to say then, this paralyzed man and his friends, they go to great lengths to try to get to Jesus. 
They dig through a roof, and then they figure out a way to lower him down from the roof, which is impressive too, by the way. Given my lack of mechanical understanding, I have no doubt that if I was in charge of this operation, the poor guy probably would have fallen from the roof as I was trying to drop him, which would have been a real bummer and an anticlimactic ending, no doubt. So I'm impressed by their work here. Nevertheless, the point is, in their desperation to find help from Jesus, they go to great trouble. They open a hole in the roof. They lower a man through a roof. In the process, they open themselves up to great criticism, scorn, and even hatred. There's desperation, and then there's desperation. These guys fall in the latter category. Like the leper, they believe that Jesus can do something that no one else can. Like the leper, they thought that Jesus would bring healing where no one else could. And it's not just the paralyzed man who believes this, it's also his friends, which is another underrated part of the story. You can understand why the paralyzed man might have been so desperate, but the desperation of his friends is somewhat surprising. It's one thing to risk social ostracization and potential humiliation to be cured of your own paralysis. It's another thing to risk all this for the sake of a friend. It's actually making me wonder this week, do I have those types of friends in my life? Friends who would dig a hole in a roof for me? And am I that type of friend to others? Would I risk losing social acceptance, even my own physical safety, to help my friends get to Jesus? I think those are questions that are probably worth pondering. Nevertheless, the point is here that the paralyzed man does have those types of friends. And when Jesus sees their faith, their collective faith, the faith of the paralyzed man and his friends, he again responds in mercy and compassion. Now, the way in which Jesus displays mercy and compassion is a bit different and a bit more nuanced than the straightforward healing that takes place with the leprous man. In the case of the paralyzed man, Jesus first addresses the man's need for forgiveness of sins, which is a crucial part of the story and a significant turning point in the Gospel of Luke. And actually, we're going to get to that part of the story here in just a little bit. But for now, suffice to say this. At the end of the story, the paralytic man is up and walking. Jesus, again, brings healing. And so in both of the stories that we see here in Luke 5, 12 to 26, we're reminded that Jesus is merciful and compassionate, responding to those who come to him in desperate faith. So that's one of the things that we learn and answer the question, who is Jesus? The second is related. Second thing we learn about Jesus, second answer to the question, who is Jesus? We learn that Jesus is powerful and mighty, bringing help and healing in ways that no one else can. Now, the desperation of both of the men in Luke 5, verses 12 to 26, would certainly suggest that they'd probably look for help in other places and have been unable to find it. And they seemed to recognize that Jesus had a power that no one else possessed. And certainly, the end of the stories would prove that to be true. Jesus was bringing help and healing in ways that no one else could. And the way in which the crowds respond to what Jesus does actually confirms this. Even the crowds seem to understand. There's just something about Jesus that is uniquely powerful. Look first at the response of the crowds in verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged them to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So Jesus tells the cleansed leper here to go and show himself to the priests, which would serve as proof that he'd been cleansed, and then to offer up a sacrifice for his cleansing in keeping with the Old Testament law. Interestingly enough, though, he then tells the man to tell no one else what had happened. Now, we're not entirely for sure why Jesus says this. This is something he actually regularly does throughout the Gospels. 
Perhaps he doesn't want the crowds coming, him to, coming to him just to be healed and thus miss the content of his message. But whatever the reason for his instruction, the word spreads anyway. Verse 15 informs us that great crowds began to gather around him to be healed of their infirmities. In other words, they recognize Jesus has a power that no one else seems to have. Now, as a bit of an aside here, in the final verse of this particular passage about the leprous man, we're informed that even as the crowds gathered about him, Jesus, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. As one commentator pointed out, rather than trying to fan the flames of his fame, Jesus was instead committed to seeking time with the Father. And given the current world that we live in, where everyone seems to want to be famous, chasing after likes on social media, the approval of the crowds, Verse 16 is probably a needed reminder of the greater priority. It's not fame. It's being obedient to the Father. But that's a theme we'll return to here shortly in the Gospel of Luke because throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus does the same thing. He withdraws to pray. For now, it's just an aside. We'll get to that here in a few chapters. But the main thing we're driving at here in verses 14 to 15 is the crowd seem to understand that Jesus possesses the power that no one else does. We see this same type of recognition of the power he possesses that's unique from the crowd's response in verses 24 to 26. Verse 24, But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now, at some level, I guess you could say this is the type of reaction you might expect from the crowd. If a man comes in paralyzed and he leaves walking, well, that tends to get your attention because that type of thing does not happen every day. It's no wonder then that the crowds were told in verse 26 respond by saying, we have seen extraordinary things today because what they saw was extraordinary. A man who's paralyzed getting up and walking, that's not normal. And so was the man being instantaneously cured from leprosy, to return to that story for a second. As it relates to the leprous man, think about this. In Jewish law, anyone who touched a leper would immediately become unclean. And understandably so, if leprosy was highly contagious, touching a leper would put you in danger of catching the disease. But with Jesus, what's interesting is it works in the exact opposite way of the way it normally does. When Jesus touches the man, instead of the man infecting Jesus with uncleanness, Jesus, if you will, infects the man with cleanness. Just to be clear, this is not normal. Think about it this way. If our dog goes out in the yard to do his business and leaves behind a deposit, if you catch my drift, I don't have an expectation that if I touch the deposit with my hand, the deposit would be infected with cleanness. On the contrary, I would have an expectation, and the right expectation, that I would be left with a mess on my hands, that I would be infected with uncleanness. So the fact that Jesus touches a leper and the leper then becomes clean rather than Jesus becoming unclean is a reminder to us Jesus possesses a power no one else has. Indeed, this is the second thing we learn about Jesus from both the story of the leper and the story of the paralyzed man, that Jesus is powerful and mighty, bringing helping and healing in ways that no one else can. But there's a third thing we learn about Jesus in our passage today. And as I alluded to earlier, I think that third thing is a bit of a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. So the third answer to the question, who is Jesus, is Jesus is God, and he has authority to forgive sins. So the story of the paralytic man is really interesting. As we documented earlier, the paralytic man and his friends go to great lengths to try to get help and healing for the man. But when he gets lowered from the roof, something unexpected happens. Look again at verses 19 and 20 here. Verse 19, 
But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were the paralyzed man and his friends, I would be a little bit confused by this interaction. The man wanted to walk again, and his friends wanted this for him too. In fact, they wanted him to walk so much that they were willing to risk great things in order to get him to Jesus. But when Jesus sees the man, he doesn't immediately tell the man to get up and walk. Instead, he tells him, man, your sins are forgiven you. I would have to imagine that for this man and his friends, they were slightly confused by Jesus' declaration. I'm sure they're thinking, okay, that's great that we're getting forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus. But what about the healing part? It kind of feels like Jesus' response is the equivalent of going to the car dealership, only to have the salesman take you into office and do some dental work. I mean, sure, the dental work might be needed, but you went to the car dealership to get a car. So what's up with the dental work? Or in the case of Luke 5, what's up with Jesus' response here? The man wants to be able to walk. So why is Jesus talking about forgiving sins? Well, actually, I think two things are happening in Jesus' response in verse 20, and both of them are enormously significant. First, I think Jesus is identifying this man's greatest need. Now, I'm sure the paralyzed man probably felt like his greatest need was to be healed of his infirmities. To get up and walk probably felt like priority one. But Jesus understood that this man's greatest need was not actually physical, it was spiritual. Simply put, he needed forgiveness of sins more than he needed to get up and walk. And hear this, our greatest need is the same as that of the paralyzed man. Our greatest problem is that we've sinned against the holy God and we deserve God's righteous wrath. And thus, like the paralyzed man, our greatest need is for forgiveness of sins so that we can have peace with God. Now, to be clear, it doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't always feel like this is our greatest need. Sometimes it feels like our greatest need is financial. We just need money to pay the bills. Or sometimes it feels like our greatest need is relational. We have broken relationships that we want restored. Or sometimes, like the paralyzed man, it feels like our greatest need is physical. We just want to feel better again. And listen, all those needs are significant, just like the paralyzed man's needs were significant. But like the paralyzed man, our greatest need is for the forgiveness of sins. We need peace with God. It would be far better to be physically sick but spiritually healthy than vice versa. If you can run a four-minute mile and you can wow everyone with your incredible hair and you can impress people with your incredible feats of strength, but you have not experienced the forgiveness of sins that can be found in Jesus Christ, your four-minute mile and your incredible hair and your feats of strength will mean nothing in the end. And the fact that Jesus responds in the way that he does in Luke 5.20 and talking about forgiveness of sins reminds us of that reality. It reminds us our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. But I think there's a second significant thing that's happening in Jesus' response in verse 20. And I think you can make the argument, and I will, that the second thing that's happening is even more significant than the first, which is saying something. Because identifying sin is our greatest need or forgiveness of sins is our greatest need is significant. But the second thing that happens is even more significant. And the second thing that's happening when Jesus looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiving, is he's implicitly claiming to be God. Okay, look again at the way the story unfolds here in verses 20 to 25. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. So the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they rightly understand only God can forgive sins. Now in the Old Testament, a priest might pronounce that God has forgiven sins, but in the Old Testament it's clear God alone can forgive sins. So when Jesus forgives the man his sins and claims the authority to do so, the scribes rightly understand Jesus is essentially claiming something that only God alone can do. This is why in verse 21, the scribes accuse Jesus of blasphemy, because they recognize rightly that only God can forgive sins. But Jesus understands this, which is why he does what he does and says what he does in verses 22 to 24. In verse 23, Jesus asks this rhetorical question. He says, which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal a paralytic? Now, it's a bit of a trick question, or at least it feels like it, because on the surface, it's easier to forgive, or it feels like it might be easier to forgive sins since no one can verify that. Whereas on the other hand, if you try to heal a person, that can be easily verified. So it seems like healing the man might be the harder task. But in reality, since God alone can forgive sins, that is the harder task. And that sets the scene for the drama that takes place in verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, Jesus says this, In order that you may know that the Son of Man, by the way, that's a title that's taken from a prophetic passage in Daniel 7 who talks about one who'd come with great authority. This is Jesus' favorite title that he uses for himself. He says, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell this man to get up and walk, and he's going to do it. And when he does it, you're going to know I have authority to forgive sins. Or in other words, you're going to know I'm God, because God alone can forgive sins. So when the man gets up in verse 25 then, this is not merely a powerful moment of healing. This is a declaration that Jesus is in fact God. And as such, he has authority to forgive sins. As we said earlier, this is a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Up until this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has certainly demonstrated his authority in a wide variety of ways. He's cast out demons, he's rebuked fevers, he's healed the sick. But now he's adding another huge piece to the puzzle. He also has authority to forgive sins, which is an authority that belongs to God alone. And of course, the rest of the Gospel of Luke helps us understand how this forgiveness is possible. It's possible because Jesus would live a perfect life and then he would go to the cross and he would die on our behalf. He would take the wrath that we deserve to take so that if we would turn to him in our greatest, if we would turn to him and recognize our sin and trust in him for salvation, our greatest problem could be solved. Our sins could be forgiven. Through Christ's death then, forgiveness of sins is possible. And so because Jesus, so because Jesus knew who he was and he knew where he was going and he knew what he was going to do, he's able to authoritatively tell the man, your sins are are forgiven. So in summary then, here are the puzzle pieces that we can put together from Luke 5, verses 12 to 26, to help us answer the question, who is Jesus? First, Jesus is merciful and compassionate, responding to those who come to him in desperate faith. Second, Jesus is powerful and mighty, bringing help and healing in ways no one else can. Third, Jesus is God, and he has authority to forgive sins. Now having said all that, I think it's worth considering then, well, how should we respond to this picture of who Jesus is? Now that we have these puzzle pieces, what should we do with this? And so in our closing time here, let me just offer up three brief responses here to each of the three things that we learned about Jesus in this passage. First, because Jesus is merciful and compassionate, responding to those who come to him in desperate faith, we should run to him in our time of need. In this passage, Jesus responds to those who come to him in desperate faith. 
And as the Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus is perfectly reflecting the heart of God that we see in both the Old and New Testament. In both the Old and New Testament, we see that when people run to God, we see this in the Psalms, if they run to God in their time of need, they find help. Now in saying that, I'm not suggesting that when we run to God in prayer, our prayers are always answered in the way that we want them to be. God is not a magic genie in the sky who grants all of our wishes. Instead, he's a loving father who gives his children what they need. Over the last few years, there have been plenty of times where God has not answered my prayers in the way that I would have hoped that he would have. But I've never regretted going to him in, in my time of need. And in retrospect, I would say this. I can say with confidence, he heard every one of my prayers, and he never left me or forsook me. Now, that doesn't mean he always answered the prayers the way I would have liked. But I, I'm confident saying he always hears, he always cares, and he always does what's best in light of the eternal picture. So listen, I don't know what situation you might be facing right now, but in a group this size, I'm sure there are some who are feeling a moment of great desperation. You feel needy. And my encouragement to you is run to him in your neediness. Remember that our God is gracious and compassionate. As demonstrated by Jesus' heart here, he loves to respond to those who come to him in desperate faith. So run to him in your time of need. Secondly, because Jesus is powerful and mighty, bringing help and healing in ways no one else can, we should run to him first. Again, Jesus is reflecting the heart of God in this passage. He's reflecting that he has a power and authority that no one else does. And so we should run to him first, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Now the difficulty is this. I know my natural tendency, and I suspect you might have this natural tendency too, is to rely on yourself, to try to fix things yourself, and then... If you can't do it, maybe then pray. So whether it be things like parenting issues or marriage issues or work issues, my first instinct is to try to rely on myself and try to push through in my own power. And then if that doesn't work, maybe then I'll think about prayer. But hear this, if, if Jesus can bring help and healing in ways that no one else can, if our God is powerful and mighty in a way that no one else is, then it would seem to me that running to him first should be priority number one. If I want to be a better parent, it starts with prayer. If I want to be a better husband, it starts with prayer. If I want to be a better pastor, it starts with prayer. Now, obviously, I'm I'm not suggesting here that prayer precludes action. I'm not talking about being a passive bystander here. I'm just saying that our first instinct should always be to recognize he has a power that we do not. If you lived in a big city right across the street from a firehouse and your house caught on fire, I would think the first thing you would do is to let the firemen know my house is on fire. It would be silly to try to put out the fire yourself with a garden hose or with a squirt gun when the firemen are at your disposal. In the same way, I would just say this. If if there is a power that Jesus possesses, and if God is unlike any other being in the universe who has the power to help and heal in ways no one else can, it would seem to me our first instinct should always be, let's pray. Number three, response three, because Jesus is God, and he has authority to forgive sins. We should go to Jesus to find forgiveness. And we should encourage others to do the same. Listen, if forgiveness of sins is our greatest need, and it is, and if forgiveness comes from God alone through the work of Christ on the cross alone, and it does, then we should run to Christ to find forgiveness. And we should encourage others to do the same. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, first of all, I'm really glad you're here. But I would encourage you to make the day, make today the day of your salvation. To turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. He alone can forgive sins. And if you turn to Christ in the past, 
but you know others who have not done so, let me encourage you to point them to the forgiveness found in Christ. Be like the paralytic men's friends who bring your friends to Jesus. So listen, I get that there are all kinds of obstacles to belief in Christ. The church is messed up, that's true. Christians are hypocrites, true also. And on and on the list could go. But at the end of the day, Christianity is about Jesus. And as our passage today reminds us, Jesus is worth following. He's gracious and compassionate, powerful and mighty. He is God. So church, let's run to him, let's follow him, and let's encourage others to do the same. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder today of why we worship Jesus. At the end of the day, we know that Christianity is about the risen Savior. It's about who Jesus is and what he did. And Lord, as we look at Luke 5 and we understand more of who he is, I pray that we would leave here with a heart that is thankful because of who Jesus is, but also a heart that is bent towards running to him. Running to him, recognizing that he gives help in time of need. Running to him, recognizing that he has the power to help and heal no one else does. Running to him, recognizing that in Christ alone, through his work on the cross, forgiveness of sins can be found. So Lord, help us to see that he is worth running to. Help us to worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you would, please stand now for our benediction. book of Jude, we find this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.